0: So there's an outline. Um, if you didn't get an outline and it would help, be helpful for you, you can run out and grab one at the table. Um, otherwise, the points will be on the screen here uh, behind me. So the first point is the plot and the betrayal, okay? So if you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, you've heard of this literary technique that Mark uses a n- number of times. Um, it goes by the very technical name the sandwich technique okay where he has one thing on one side like a piece of bread one thing on another side like a piece of bread and then the meat's in the middle okay well there's a sandwich technique going on right here the Markin sandwich right or if we want to use maybe a more apt illustration we could call it a rose between two thorns anybody awake um okay so there's betrayal on either side here, and then there's this rose in between. So verses one and two, the plot of the the religious leaders, verses 10 and 11, the betrayal of Judas, and in between is this story of this woman, this beautiful sacrificial act. So here it is. Verses one and two, the murderous intent, and Judas on the other end. We're going to look at both ends before we look in the middle. Okay, so the animosity and the plotting of the religious leaders has been brewing for a while. Okay, if you if you've been with us, you've seen that. If not, um, just give you a couple samples of this back in chapter three. After Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath, he had a shriveled hand, and he heals him on the Sabbath. And then Mark 3:6 the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. So that early, they're plotting to kill Jesus, take him out. In Mark 11, after Jesus upended tables in the temple, right, he's cleansing the temple, you know, dealing with, um, confronting the corruption in the temple. Mark 11:18, the chief priests and the scribes heard of this and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then in chapter 12, after Jesus told a parable to confront the religious leaders, in verse 12 it says, They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, which he had, so they left him and went away. So in a sense, the last straw has already been dropped. between Jesus and the religious leaders at this point in the story. They've ceased to dialogue. Remember, they came asking question after question, trying to pin him against the wall, and he evaded all of that and then ends up turning the tables and asking them a question, and they can't, they won't answer it. So he silenced them. He's turned away from the temple. He's left the temple, almost like in the Old Testament, the glory departing the temple. And really only his popularity with the crowd is protecting him at this point from their hands, keeping them from acting more swiftly. So at the festival times, especially under Roman occupation, there's tons of people coming in Jerusalem. They're going to be extra vigilant to make sure there aren't any riots. This would be a really bad time to arrest Jesus publicly because the people, he's popular with them, and they're going to freak out and then that's going to bring you know, the heavy hand of Rome down on them. So we see in verses 1 and 2, it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, don't do it during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. So the heading over chapter 14, all of chapter 14, chapter 14 is a long chapter, could be betrayal. It's all about the abandonment of the disciples, betrayal of Jesus before and during his suffering. So since his popularity is still protecting him, the religious leaders need this way to arrest him, how do we do it in, in such a way that we draw as little attention as possible, do it away from the crowds, Undercover of night would probably be the best scenario, right? But that makes it difficult. This is before electric light. How are we going to recognize him to arrest the right man? They don't have the internet with his picture pasted everywhere. So they needed someone who had information on the movements of Jesus and his disciples. So we're not sure how they spread the word, right? It says, um, well, actually, I'm going (laughs) to show you a cross-reference here in just a second. So somehow, essentially, they kind of do a covert most-wanted poster. I mean, they can't post this on, on any telephone poles anywhere, but John eleven fifty seven says this, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So who all did they tell that to? Who knows? But somehow, maybe did Judas catch wind of this? And he's already disgruntled because Judas takes the initiative. Look at the other thorn, if we talk about thorn on one side, thorn on the other, and the rose in between, right? So look at the other thorn, verses 10 and 11, the other bookend to our passage in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And it ended up being 30 pieces of silver. And he betrayed him for that. He sought an opportunity to betray him. So the chief priests didn't recruit Judas. He approached them. Probably gave them a little extra measure of gladness to know that the betrayal came from inside, from one of his own disciples. I mean, Judas is basically like a paid informant. If you know the Old Testament and some of the messianic psalms and prophecies, unknowingly, Judas ends up fulfilling the words of Psalm 41. Psalm 41.9 says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So Judas, we, we, we don't, we're not let into his internal thoughts and evaluations. Um, somehow he must have come to believe that Jesus was a failed Messiah Perhaps he had more of a zealot streak in him, and he found Jesus a little too weak to be the political, military, religious leader that they needed to overthrow the Roman oppression. You can imagine him saying, like, all this talk of his impending death and burial that can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is a victor, not a victim. So, James Edwards, um, commentator on Mark, Mark's Gospel. Writes with sobering clarity when he helps us think about Judas's guilt. He says, This Judas was fully responsible for his betrayal of Jesus. It is he who goes to the chief priests, not they to him. The account closes with no Hamlet like soliloquy lamenting a tragic decision, but with Judas's icy resolve to complete his insidious. Plan. Judas is thus not a victim of circumstances or a pawn dominated by greater forces. He is a moral agent who freely chooses evil in handing Jesus over. So as we now transition point number two, just one more observation of this, these thorns that surround the throne. <laughs> what did I just say? The thorns that surround the rose um, structure because there's also an insider-outsider motif present here. Verse three begins like this. Look at verse three. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman enters in, comes in. So Bethany lay outside Jerusalem. Simon the leper Elicits outsider connotations. I mean, certainly by this time, Simon must have been healed, and perhaps even by Jesus, because if he was still a leper, he wouldn't be having people at his house. He would have to be, you know, separate from everyone, because lepers were outcasts. They were the ultimate outsiders. But here, this outside of Jerusalem, at the house of an outsider, or at least previously an outsider, and then an outsider comes in. A woman who in that culture would have been viewed as kind of second-class citizen. The men enjoying a higher station. And she's unnamed. So here's this nameless woman coming from the outside and yet displaying uncommon understanding and exemplary Devotion. The insiders, the religious leaders, Judas, they're the ones who are blind to the mission and the worth of Christ. So the insiders end up being more outside, and this outsider is inside. Kind of sounds like the first shall be last and the last shall be first, which was back in chapter 9, if you remember. So the structure creates this contrast. Faithless treachery on either side and exemplary faith in the middle. Okay? So let's consider that rose in the middle now between the two thorns. And what we'll see is that there is beauty in the midst of the betrayal. Point number two. What did this woman value? So first off, It's most likely that this event here in Mark 14 is the same one narrated in Matthew 26 and in John 12, okay? If you know uh, some of the other gospels and are familiar with them. There's also an incident that is similar in Luke 7, but that's most certainly a different woman and a different incident, okay? That said, I'm not going to go to those other passages, Matthew 26, um, John 12, as far as bringing detail because they have additional detail in them because there are reasons why Mark includes and excludes certain details. And we should actually pay attention to what he includes and excludes and note those things. So for instance, let me just give you an example. Um, Assuming this is the same incident as Matthew 26, John 12, this woman is actually Mary. Do you know who Mary was? This is the Mary that is Lazarus' brother. In fact, in John 12, that's right after John 11, which is where Lazarus is raised from the dead. Okay? So this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, sister of Martha. So we could certainly say a few things about Mary. Perhaps they would be helpful as we move toward the application of this text to our lives. But why did Mark leave her unnamed. Surely it's not because he's slighting her. okay? The honor that Jesus bestows on this woman is tremendous. We'll see that at the end of the section. I mean, you probably noted it. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. So Mark clearly communicates that honor. But we need to consider, we'll do it a little bit later, why did he leave her nameless? So let's consider this woman what she valued. Look at verse three. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. So this ointment called pure nard would have been imported from India, actually. Rare, valuable possession, certainly the most valuable thing she owned. You didn't have um, a lot of people had their, their substance in land or you know, other things. And, and it was not uncommon for someone to have very valuable perfume like this. It could even be passed on generation to generation. So this is an incredibly valuable. Possession and she breaks the flask and pours it over Jesus's head. Why'd she do that? Well, it was common at meals, especially feasts, as a sign of honor and hospitality to anoint the head of your guests with oil. Remember Psalm 23? You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It's a meal context, right? That being said, this goes way beyond any kind of customary norms, so much so that it's actually offensive to those, to some of those folks that are sitting in the room. And who's in the room? Presumably the disciples. So, verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this, waste, this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So, denarii, we don't have any of those in our pockets a denarii was a day's wage for a day laborer someone who would be working in the fields for instance 300 of them 300 of them is like a year's wages so let's just try to roughly put that in today's dollars maybe something like 45 to sixty thousand dollars, ballpark so for the sake of the point Let's say that this is like pouring out, in a moment, 50 grand. Think of that. Imagine spending 50 grand in one moment at one meal. Imagine seeing another Christian do that. I mean, I was trying to like think of... Is there any context where we could even like fathom something similar in our world today? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you have some dear friend who's lived in your area for a time and they're moving and this final meal together and you, I don't know, you go all out and somehow the bill is 50 grand. Like, or maybe somebody's diagnosed with stage four cancer and there's nothing. They just found out there's nothing that the medical community can do. And while they can still enjoy it, you want to have this night and 50 grand. How would you react to that kind of money being spent? Might you tut tut and maybe even scold? Again, there's no one-to-one here and maybe it's not all that helpful but those, to to try to tease it out but the people at the meal if you kind of try to enter into their shoes you can maybe see why they scold her. They shamed her. They made it clear that they thought she just wasted that treasured possession. But look at how Jesus responds. Verse six, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me anybody ever read that before and been bothered? Like, seems like Jesus is kind of hating on the poor. This could easily be misunderstood. He's not hating on the poor here. I mean, obviously his whole ministry and life speaks otherwise, right? He's actually making an allusion to Deuteronomy 15, 11, And that passage is all about caring for the poor. So, I think we've got those verses here, verses 10 and 11, just quickly here to put this in your minds. Um, You shall give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Speaking of the poor, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So we could say more about the context there, but suffice it to say, the point Jesus is making is between the Always and the not always. They will always have the poor and they should always do good to them, but they'll not always have me. I'm not always going to be here with you in the flesh. So the rationale is actually similar to when the religious leaders approached Jesus and his disciples, you know, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus didn't say, my disciples don't ever need to fast. He said, why would they fast while the bridegroom's here? But there'll be a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. So, do you see? Is everybody tracking here? Everybody, you could go like this, and like, and I would know if you're tracking. Okay. Um, so Jesus is not disparaging the poor. He was poor. His whole earthly ministry speaks of I love the poor and the vulnerable. So if their concern was really for the poor, there was plenty of opportunity. But the window of opportunity to demonstrate love for Jesus in person was closing because he's heading to his death. So James Edwards, again, let me quote him. He helps us appreciate what's going on here. In placing himself above the poor, Jesus places himself above the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, which in that sense is kind of shocking. Unless you're God. Then it's love God with all your heart, and soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So subtly, there's a lot going on here. Back to the quote, but with unassuming pretentiousness, Jesus asserts his priority to all other goods. The value of a gift signals the value of the person to whom it is given. The extravagance of the woman shows that she alone understands Jesus's incommensurable worth there we go now we're starting to get to the heart of this thing so there was this time in seminary um like 25 years ago holy cow Um, when a fellow seminarian you actually have these like preaching classes you know and it's kind of synthetic you're like preaching to your fellow classmates and critiquing each other and whatever. Um, It's helpful. It's it's synthetic. But this one dude was preaching on John 12, which I said is the same incident, different passage. And this kid was a very gifted preacher. Dude could preach like way better than I could. Um, And he preached and waxed eloquent about how extravagant Mary's devotion was. And then he said how, you know, this passage applies to us that our devotion should be as extravagant as Mary's, and no shade on him, but something just didn't seem right. By the end, I realized what it was. Again, no shade on that dude. Um, I wouldn't want you to hear my preaching from back then. There's plenty of Sundays where I feel like I I wish um, I was listening to somebody else, but anyway, the dude missed the point. The point is not that this woman is impressive. The point is that Jesus is impressive. He is of infinite worth, incommensurable. We don't use that word very often. Just can't compare. Like there's no measurement here. This woman is the only one in the room that sees how much he's worth and responds accordingly. I mean, you've got to ask the question, why did she do this? It's because she alone understands Jesus' unequaled, impossible to measure, incommensurable worth. Worth. And sometimes, you can only see the worth of a thing or a person indirectly through the eyes and the experience of another, through the way someone else responds to it, and then it, like, helps you see what you should see. Like those piano people that help that pastor see the value of that piano, or... A couple other examples, use my sons, neither of them are here. Ben wasn't feeling so well this morning. Um, so Sam has opened my eyes to the world of luxury watches. It's a little bit of a hobby for him. Um, I had no idea. I mean, I'd heard of Rolex, right? I would have never noticed before, but because of his interest and in some of the things that he's told me and showed me and whatever, over the last couple years, I learned enough where when we were flying home from San Francisco after doing that wedding, was that two weekends ago? Um, Sit down, I'm at the window, Beth's in the middle, dude's on the end. I look over and I was like, whoa, guy's got an AP on his wrist. This watch is probably worth tens of thousands of dollars. I like snuck a little picture of it, you know, (laughs) sent it to Sam. I was like, look at this guy's watch, you know. Um, or if you happen to ever be driving, so that was one son, we use another son, if you ever happen to be driving around and Ben's in the car, he might all of a sudden tell you how much that car's worth that just drove by, you know, if you see a Lamborghini Urus or a, you know, McLaren 650 or whatever it is, and he'll tell you how many horsepower it has, he'll tell you this, that, and the other thing, but he can tell you how much it is that car's worth, $185,000. That car's like $250,000. Well, part of that is because I probably told him. <laughs> so he was a second-hander, and now he's a first-hander. Second-hand led him to see, and he likes and enjoys, and now he's a first-hander, and he can point it out to you. You know those cars are actually out there, right? But you didn't know that because you didn't have Ben in your car. So anyway, so the point is not this woman's lavish sacrificial generosity like, oh, she's the hero, let's put her up on the pedestal. It's what we see secondhand from her lavish sacrificial act. And this gets back to the question of why Mark left her anonymous. He wants us, you and me, the readers, to reflect on what she did and why, not on who she is. He wants us to ponder the nature of faith and discipleship, not focus on the identity of this disciple as much as he honors her. The anonymity actually pushes our focus onto the right thing. She's not the focus. She's not the hero. Jesus is. And consequently, her act then invites us to experience firsthand the surpassing worth of Christ. So what happens is, As we look into this story and see what we see, then the camera turns on us. What do you value? The word is examining you and me, exposing our values, displaying our values, and inviting us to see what's really valuable so point number three what do you value first off let's just beware like let's take the caution from this passage let's beware religious pretext for greed and selfishness and kind of minimalist Christianity so the disciples give a religious reason for their indignance why do they scold her this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. It's kind of like the disciples scolding people for bringing children to Jesus. Ah, he's too important. He's too busy. Keep them away. And Jesus says, uh, no, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Let the little children come. So let's beware religious pretexts to justify, to rationalize our selfishness and our stinginess. That's what was really underneath. There's blindness underneath. Basically, what they were saying is, Jesus isn't worth it. Jesus isn't worth this extravagance. What a waste. So the question is, how much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth to you and to me? What does your life say? What does my life say? What does your life and my life display about what Jesus is worth to us? And like right now, in this moment, can I encourage you to join me in praying Psalm 139, 23 and 24? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's welcome that kind of examination. What this woman did was beautiful because there was no one more beautiful and valuable than Jesus. So this lavish waste isn't foolish. It's beautiful. Listen, someone, do you know anybody like this? I've known a few, certainly heard more than a few stories along these lines. Have you ever heard of, known someone who could make loads of money with their skills, who left it all behind in order to serve in some ministry. Is that person wasting their life? Wasting their influence? Wasting their earning power? No, they're doing something beautiful because Jesus is worth it. Selena Hastings, Countess of Huntington, had all kinds of power and privilege and money, and she did not waste her life because she plowed it into the work of the gospel at the time of the Great Awakening in the 1700s. She could have, I mean, she could have lived higher on the hog, but it just wasn't all that attractive to her. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, British preacher, He was like top of the class in med school, got a great fellowship. He was on the fast track. He ended up leaving it all to become a preacher. Was that a waste? There's actually a woman right now named Catherine Butler who left her medical practice as a critical care surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital to homeschool her kids. And she's also written some books including some fiction for kids, um, book about death and dying, and um, some fiction that actually I was listening to with Ben. So listen, why do I bring these things up? The point is not to say that you have to make a career change if you really value Jesus. No. The point is that what we really value is seen in how we live, the decisions we make, the sacrifices we make. So think of a couple of passages here, Matthew 13, 44, 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Kind of like breaking the flask and pouring it out to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great price, great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Have that picture in your mind. And then you remember the rich young ruler when he came up to Jesus? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, I'll keep the commandments. Oh yeah, I've, I've kept those from my youth. Okay. Rather than quibble about that, let me just cut to the chase. Jesus goes for the jugular in a sense, and he says, okay, just go sell all you have. Give money to the poor. Come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. And he looks at that and he goes like this. That's not a good deal. And he walked away. treasure hidden in a field. That guy is skipping all the way to the pawn shop. Smile on his face. Sold everything he had to buy the field because he saw how valuable the treasure was. Jesus just told that guy, the rich young ruler, you have treasure in heaven. Ah. No, No, did you hear what I said? Like, the kind of treasure that moss, moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break, can't break in and steal? Nah, bad deal. So do we see the value? How much is Jesus, how much is the kingdom of heaven worth to you, to me? Think of the apostle Paul. Why did he include that passage that Greg read? Is he just trying to, like, make it all about him? Well, let me tell you my story. You know, I was a Pharisee, and look at my impressive resume. No, he's actually saying, I want to make sure that you guys don't get your value system totally out of whack. Listen, I'm in prison, Paul speaking. I'm not in prison. Paul speaking when he's writing Philippians. I'm in prison, and I am rejoicing. I got prison ministry going on. I've already counted everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Don't you worry about me. I am rejoicing in the Lord. I want you guys to rejoice in the Lord when you suffer, when you struggle, whether you have a lot, whether you have a little. The secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ. Because I have him. And then he says, imitate me, follow me. This is what maturity looks like. So how much is Jesus worth to you, to me? Now listen, okay, this all might just land on us like a bunch of guilt and failure. Oh, great. (laughs) Can't just leave it here. We certainly need to look in and be honest with ourselves, but we can't end by looking in. We need to look up. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the great treasure. So let's consider point number four, how this story fits into the big story. Look at 14.1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now look at verse 8. We didn't hit this yet leave her alone she's done what she could she's anointed my body beforehand for burial do you see where this thing is going you see how important this is to the story like how this little story fits in the big story jesus has predicted his death several times already right if you've been walking through the gospel mark with us you know that and here is another prediction in dramatic form and it's with the connotations of Passover and the exodus hanging in the air from verse 1. What does all this mean? The blood of the Passover lamb was to cover and redeem the people from death. So just as slavery from, or freedom from slavery in Egypt was won at the death of the firstborn and the blood of lambs painted on the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over The death of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood was shed to cover us, to make atonement for our sins. We can't atone for our own sins. To redeem us, set us free from slavery to sin and the condemnation for sin that we deserve. So this little story right here is saying, Whoa, do you know what's going on here? The old covenant is passing away. The old order is about to end. The temple's going to be destroyed. The new covenant, that's coming in my blood. The dawning of the new day is about to begin. The whole trajectory of the gospel is pressing toward the tearing of the veil. Remember? Jesus just predicted the destruction of the temple. He is, what was the temple for? It's where God met with Humanity. He's now the place where we meet with God and can be reconciled to God. Atonement can be made so that we can be reconciled with God. Jesus is just about to accomplish the greater exodus. Setting us free, not just from slavery in some country under some strong man, Pharaoh, but setting us free from sin, slavery to sin. He's going to form a new covenant, and he's going to form that people around himself. He is, he is, he is the anointed king and messiah. He is the prophet. He is the temple. He's the high priest. He is the offering, the lamb of God. He's the mercy seat. He's the manna from heaven. We could go on and on and on. He's everything. So remember my beloved seminarian sermon? If that's the point this lady was extravagant in her devotion. You need to be extravagant in your devotion. You don't even need a cross for that. It's just be more extravagant, everybody. See you next week. <sighs> you don't need a cross. You just need more devotion. Aren't you glad that that's not the gospel? The gospel is... Though he was infinitely wealthy, infinitely rich, for your sake he became poor so that you and me through his poverty might become rich. All the riches of God's mercy and his grace and his love and his compassion and his care and his promises. How in the world do we get those? Through Jesus He dies so that we can have everything. He gave everything so that we could have him. So as far as any sort of extravagant gift, it's he gave so that we can give. We give because he first gave. And then verse nine, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So, the gospel—I mean, this this just obviously assumes the resurrection and the victory, right? Beyond the humiliation of the cross and death to the triumph of the resurrection. There's no gospel if Jesus stays in the gate, in the cave, dead in the cave. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, "I remind you of the gospel that I've received: Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures; He was buried." that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what you believed, right? Stand firm in it. So the gospel is about Jesus and his infinite worth, how he poured out his life, his riches, to give us nothing of what we deserve. He took what we deserve, right? The debt, the condemnation, and he gave us everything that we don't deserve. Love this quote by Thomas Brooks. There is in a crucified Christ something proportionate to all the straits, needs, necessities, and desires of his poor people. He is bread to nourish them, a garment to cover and adorn them, a physician to heal them, a counselor to advise them, a captain to defend them, a prince to rule them, a prophet to teach them, a priest to make atonement for them, a husband to protect them, a father to provide for them, a brother to relieve them, a foundation to support them, a head to guide them, a treasure to enrich them, a son to enlighten them, and a fountain to cleanse them. What more can any Christian desire? to satisfy him and save him and to make him holy and happy in time and eternity. Everything is ours in Christ, which leads to our last point, maximalist Christianity. No, let's call it normal Christianity. Maximalist Christianity ought to be normal Christianity. It's so easy to be a minimalist, isn't it? Like, what's the minimum requirement to just get by and be okay? No, the question is, how much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth to you, to me? Let me quote James Edwards one more time, and then we're, we're almost done here. We cannot know whether their indignation, the disciples in the room, is owing to genuine concern for the poor, or whether, as is often the case, the poor are simply used as a pretext, like we mentioned earlier, for other motives. Whatever their motives, they regard the costly devotion of the woman as a waste Their condemnation obviously demeans the woman and her gift in asserting that there could be better use for the money, however. They demean Jesus as well, whom they regard as unworthy of such extravagance. And then this. The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much, like, here, if you want to be a maximalist, it's okay if you want to be a maximalist with regard to wealth and power and sex and influence. But don't be a maximalist with religion. The unnamed woman deems Jesus worthy of her sacrifice where the disciples do not. So do you see why we need this woman's beautiful act told in memory of her? We need, you and I need some second-handing so we can become first-handers, just like Ben did with the value of the cars. So listen, brothers and sisters, I think just there's lots of ways to Apply this, you can discuss it at your community groups, maybe today or this week. One thing is, I think oftentimes we treat the Bible like it's just a road map. OK, It's a, it's a road map. That's good, but it's not just a road map. What am I going to say? It is a treasure map. Do you view your Bible like a treasure map, and like, all roads lead to Jesus. He is the great treasure. So we're going to we're going to close by singing the Wonderful Cross. Okay, which is a newer song that I mean newer, I don't know, 25 years old or whatever, 20 years, but it takes some of the words from When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, an old song. When I survey, we need to look and ponder. We need to see and know the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, the response is, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So as we look and as we see the treasure What will be elicited is the response. But the most important thing is seeing. And not just seeing to gather information, but seeing to treasure what is truly valuable. Remember our purpose statement? We exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name And the good of all peoples, the more we become first handers, we're going to be pointing people to the truest treasure in the universe, the only ultimate treasure in the universe so that they can become first handers the good of all peoples, the glory of his name. Whatever we set our sights on and treasure, we're gonna bring attention to the worth of that thing. We are gonna magnify the worth of that thing. So we exist to reflect God's infinite worth like the moon to the sun, but the sun needs to get its orientation with the sun so that that's what we shine with. We need to radiate his light and worth. So this woman is is just telling us he's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy. Let's look and survey the wondrous cross so that we join the song now and we're going to be singing it forever. Worthy is the lamb who is slain and by your blood you purchased, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb. When we survey that and savor that, we become people through whom others will see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, and they will be invited in, just like we've been invited by this woman to taste and see that the Lord is good and beautiful and infinitely valuable. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to open our eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus. Please do it. Please expose all the things that compete for first place, for our affections and loves and attention. Show them to be the husks and the ashes that they are. Lord Jesus, would you take the first place and put all of that in its appropriate place? So many good gifts, certainly, that we can enjoy in this life, but only in their proper relation to you and only with you, Lord Jesus, as our surpassingly valuable treasure. Please help us to see. Please help us to treasure you And shine with your light so that we invite others into the same experience of the surpassing value of knowing you as Savior and Lord. We ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen.